This week on the Cameron Journal podcast, we are talking all about the last Democratic debate last week, and we're going to dash through some of the impeachment stuff, um, both of which have kind of become a mixed mess of sorts. Um, And we're going to talk about the Republicans attacking the impeachment process and what it means for the 2020 race, as well as the possibility of Mike Pence versus Trump. Um, There'll be a little bit of the serious stuff in there as well as we kind of navigate through the presidential race, but we're going to focus on the debate this week and the 2020 race because some developments have happened. So strap in, get ready. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. This is the Cameron Journal podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. A bit of housekeeping as we start off today. Um, There will most likely be no podcast next week as I am moving downstairs starting Monday. And I don't know if I will have the studio fixed up by then. Um, So, um, yeah, let's plan on not having a podcast next week, especially as um, my old place has already been pretty much rented out and I have to be out of here faster than I thought I would be. So I am... uh, uh, yeah, so we're that's that's happening. So uh, let's plan on not having a weekly news podcast next week. So um, that means we'll have two weeks of news to catch up on the week following. Um, if I do get the studio together, I might try to do something later. But I, I'm just going to say that we're not going to have a podcast next week. Um, if things go in a different direction and I do get the studio set up and I can prep and make a decent show um, I will let you know on Twitter Um, but for now let's just presume that we're not going to have a podcast next week Um, as far as um, everything else I think we're going we're going right along so um, please make sure to share the podcast uh, with your friends Um, if you've been looking for the produced episodes that are pretty popular, don't worry. I have a whole bunch of them scripted. I will get them done here soon. I have been a little bit low energy as of late because I have a novel coming out in December and I'm also getting my bookstore ready for the holiday season. So things are a little bit busy. Um, I'm going to be adding ebooks and audiobooks to the bookstore here soon. So that will be very exciting. Um, you're going to be able to, um, we're going to be doing audiobooks through Libro FM. And we're also going to be doing ebooks um, from a company called Hummingbird. So um, if you want to support indie bookstores and escape the Amazon ecosystem, pretty soon I will be offering those products too. We're very excited about that moving forward um yeah so i think that's the housekeeping bits today let's dive into the thing we didn't discuss last week as we were trying to take a break from the insanity of politics we're going to be talking about the 
last Democratic presidential debate. It's four of potentially six debates. We had 12 candidates last time, including Tom Steyer, who was new, and a lot went on. These debates are getting a little tedious, I think, for most people, just because there are so many of them and there are still so many candidates and people are just sort of ready for it to be over. The, I think the big moment of the night was Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke had a pretty nice back and forth about Beto's dramatic mandatory gun buyback. And on the one hand, a lot of people who are gun advocates are saying, yeah, this is great. Um... You know, that someone's finally saying, oh, we should have a buyback. We should actually do something about gun control, all this type of thing. However, I think Buttigieg voiced a lot of um, of frustration, I think, of people on the left and people in general, thinking people who come out and say, OK, how exactly is that going to work? And that's basically what Buttigieg said is how are you going to create how are you going to do this how are you going to force people to sell their rifles back to the government when they are unregistered we don't know who has them so essentially even a mandatory buyback would be a voluntary buyback and the it was sad because it was a it was a bad moment for gun control because better work just kind of stared into the headlights for a moment and then mentioned fines and penalties um which was obviously kind of a coached answer and um yeah i think to some greater or lesser degree his candidacy has finally withered on the vine i don't i mean better work was never going to get the nomination anyway and it's definitely not happening now uh, that, that was, I think, was an interesting discussion of, okay, gun control, that's cool. How is that actually going to work? How is that actually going to happen? How do we implement such a thing? How would we pass a law on that? And it kind of showed the difference between great platitudes about things versus how do we actually get something done? And this was a theme kind of throughout the night. Um, we didn't lead off with healthcare, but we definitely, of course, got to the Medicare for all question, of which there are obviously kind of three camps. There's Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are mandatory private insurance is going away, Medicare for all. There's the middle camp, which is Kamala Harris and others who are kind of like, we will get to Medicare for all with a four to ten year transition period as we basically slowly but surely strangle the health insurance industry and then there are those like people who say let's do medicare for all that want it let's have a public option that's also joe biden um in fact in some ways and chuck todd said this on the chuck todd cast Buttigieg was better at explaining Biden than Biden was. And I think if Biden were not in the race, Pete Buttigieg would be doing a lot better. I think a lot of people are concerned with his youth. Um, and that, I think, is probably his one barrier to polling higher than he is. 
but he has kind of very Joe Biden positions and the fact that he comes from the middle of the country is something that he really he really leans into on these things of okay these are nice ideas how how are we going to make this work how are we going to make this practical how do we solve the problem without telling 155 million Americans who have private insurance that we're just going to get rid of that in favor of something else and that still <clears throat> very much remains to be seen as to how we're going to do that or how that's going to happen. And Elizabeth Warren took a lot of incoming on this debate. We're going to get to that in a minute um, on this issue and how exactly in dollars and cents it's going to be paid for. In that way, Bernie Sanders is a bit ahead of her, is a bit ahead of her. He's already written legislation on this and has already explained how it's going to be paid for. So that is... Um, that is kind of where that debate centered on. It does, those debates always tend to get very technical. They tend to get very much into the weeds. And I think Buttigieg again had a breakout moment where he said, look, this is technical. Americans do not care about our petty squabbling about how exactly we are going to solve this problem with all these kind of very technical, minute sort of things. They want to, they basically want to see, do the Democrats have a better idea than the Republicans do? The Republicans have offered nothing really on health care other than a myriad of attempts to repeal Obamacare, which their own GOP constituents don't want to see done. And, um, and it also has been, uh, and I, I think that's, Broadly speaking, I think where, where most people are are on the matter, but I did find it very interesting. And the whole, the debate on healthcare was shorter than it had been in previous debates, and it was kind of in 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 the middle. And I think it showed the divide in the Democrat Party between moderates and progressives, which would be a theme for the for the evening. Um, but as Sonny Hostin said on The View the next day, she said, look, at least the Democrats are having the, this conversation. This conversation is going on in the Democrat Party. The GOP is nowhere to be found. Are, you know, are people willing to stick with a party that does not have any meaningful answer to solve a problem that a variety of people have? I think it's an important discussion. Is it going to move the needle as far as the election goes? I think that remains to be seen. There are other things to move move the needle. Um, Elizabeth Warren, it was her first debate as the front runner. She went into the debate polling better than Biden. And everyone was kind of coming after her. There was lots of incoming fire for Warren on a variety of fronts. Um, she kind of took the most of it on on Medicare for all, especially from Pete Buttigieg and also from Joe Biden. Um, Biden went into this debate with the Ukraine thing hanging over his head and what his son had done in terms of being on the board of this uh, energy company. And so there was a kind of a lot of I think a lot of issues going into the debate. I think Warren viewed it as her chance to kind of take on Joe Biden and really kind of claim that front runner spot. And that never really worked out for her because Kamala Harris was coming for her and Pete Buttigieg was coming for her. And Joe Biden was saying, like, you have all these nice ideas, but you have no idea how to get it done. Joe Biden was condescending towards her at times. 
um, especially when she was talking about her record with the uh, Consumer Protection Bureau and working with Obama and Biden on that, and Biden kind of almost verbally patted her on the head and said, oh, yeah, you kind of did a, a good job and kind of diminished diminished her a little bit to kind of be like, look, I've been out here for 30 years trying to solve these problems and I deserve the White House because I can actually work with people and get things done, not just stand on stage and say a bunch of nice things and hope people like it. So that I think is, I thought that was a sharp contrast and I don't necessarily know that Elizabeth Warren was necessarily up to up to the task. She faltered a little bit. That being said, we got the post debate polling and it was very interesting because Amy Klobuchar had a great debate night. She was actually able to talk. She was able to put out her ideas. She was able to talk about legislation she had passed. She was able to also lean into her Midwest roots. She was also able to lean in as a moderate and attack Bernie and Elizabeth from the right. And she didn't get a great bump in polling. She got a 1% bump in polling, but for her, that's a 50% increase. So she, and she's been on a lot of talk shows and has been on Rachel Maddow and has been places. And she, she was able to kind of raise her profile and she's qualified for the next debate. Um, I think it, it was her campaign needed some vitality and it got it. That was, you know, kind of really really good. In contrast, Kamala Harris needed a moment to revitalize her campaign after peaking over the summer and having fallen off. And she she never really got it. I think she she spoke in total over a three hour debate. I think she spoke maybe 11 minutes and she never had a tremendous breakout moment. If anything, she said a lot of the same things that we have heard before. We didn't have opening remarks um we did have a pretty terrible closing question um we didn't discuss climate change but we did discuss um awkward friendships because at the time ellen degeneres was taking some fire over um her friendship with george w bush and people were saying how can you be friends with a war criminal basically and uh and so the last question of the debate was what is an a surprising friendship that you've had in your life? That was the final question of a three-hour debate of people wanting to be president. People who are trying to get the nomination of their party to run for president. That was the final question. So CNN, it was a CNN New York Times debate, and it, it was just that Twitter lost a gasket at that question. And I admit I contributed because I felt like it was a terrible question. I didn't feel like it served anyone or helped anyone or moved the debate forward. Um, Kamala Harris did get a nice moment talking about abortion, which was good in a woman's right to choose and enshrining that in law and making sure that access was free and openly available to people um that was interesting and vital and important um that did not turn into any additional polling for her so that so while that was kind of a good moment it didn't really um it wasn't i think what her campaign was looking for in terms of, of a breakout moment sanders went into the debate fresh out of heart surgery 
from his uh, cardiovascular problem. He looked and sounded great. He seemed to be full steam ahead. Um, he was not, he didn't get as much speaking time as the debate previous. So that was, um, you know, that, that was kind of a change, but he looked, sounded fine, looked and sounded great. Um, Biden was able to survive all the stuff about Ukraine and his son. He did have a good night and the post debate polling, um, showed a resilience in his, in his support. Um, the support is kind of spread out. Um, between Sanders, Biden, and Warren. Um, Biden got some additional support. Warren got... There was kind of a 1% trade of of support between some people. As I said, Klobuchar got 1%, kind of more. Warren got 1%. Bernie got 1%. Biden stayed the same. Biden is still down. He was over 20%. He's now down. Um... And interestingly enough, in and those are in, in national polls, in Iowa, um, Buttigieg had a huge surge <clears throat> after the debate. Um, is now over Bernie Sanders in Iowa, so it's uh, it's Warren Buttigieg Biden in Iowa, and for the first time, Buttigieg is moving <clears throat> into into being a top tier candidate, which I thought was interesting um i put in my notes that biden was his polling in iowa was falling um because of some comments that that were made and all it, the polling didn't go down as much as i thought it would or could um so trump uh said in a recent tweet that the impeachment process and we'll get to the impeachment update uh was a lynching um of him and that this you know this this whole impeachment process it's been a witch hunt now it's a lynching um biden said the same thing about the bill clinton impeachment in 1998 that news story kind of came and went for other things that we're going to get to and uh that definitely biden has taken a hit in polling some of biden's support has moved to Buttigieg, has moved to klobuchar um, and some of it has moved to, to Elizabeth Warren as as well. I think Buttigieg doing well in Iowa, opening two offices, all this type of thing, definitely um, leaves him a chance to um, I think to be a VP if he wants it. I don't foresee him getting the nomination for a variety of reasons. I just feel like most voters think 37 is too young to be president. I think most people at least want you to be 40 plus um, in order to be president. And, and weirdly enough, unless you're the weird, unless you're the, the weird Tennessee um, county commissioner, um, and I, I'm going to be posting about that on the blog here soon. Um, if you didn't hear in Tennessee, a county commissioner at a county commissioner hearing um, complained that we have a, a, a quote, queer running for president. Um, unless you're him and people like him, I think most people care far less about Buttigieg's sexuality and far more about how young he is and the fact that he's a mayor of a modest sized town in Indiana and thinks he should skyrocket straight to the White House. 
I think that's the barrier for Buttigieg even more. But as I have said privately to others, and I think I may have said here, and I will certainly say again, the thing to remember about Buttigieg is Buttigieg is, is the first legitimate millennial candidate. He's a veteran. He's fought in America's long wars. He represents the future of the Democrat Party. He's probably not going to get the nomination. Anything is possible, so I can't say it definitively. He's probably not going to get the nomination. But he is indicative of what a millennial president will most likely be like. I would look for... Um, comparable candidates in 2024 and 2028. He's practical, he is liberal in the right ways, but he's also moderate in other ways. And there's a deep practicality of, okay, let's be progressive, but let's also be smart. And let's get something done. Let's create solutions for people. And let's, let's not just say things that make us feel good, let's actually do things that are good. And I think that is going to be at when we get a millennial president and it, that day will not be far off um the first cohort of millennials will be turning 40 um over the next couple years that i think is going to be emblematic of what a millennial president will be like so as i've told people privately he's not going to get the nomination but take note Buttigieg is what a millennial president will look like um, in kind of the shadow of the debate, um, the, and kind of all that happened, it was a three hour debate, CNN, New York Times, um, I was live tweeting the debate. If you want to see me live tweet debates and talk about these sorts of things live, um, uh, at the time they're happening, um, follow me on Twitter at Cameron Cowan. Interestingly enough, during the debate, Tulsi Gabbard um, did try asking some questions of her own and kind of overriding the moderators. She attacked Kamala Harris again. She attacked Elizabeth Warren again. Interestingly enough, after the debate was when Gabbard got into the news even more, and she's been in the news for a couple days. Um, Hillary Clinton came out. She's been promoting. Hillary has been promoting a new book. Hillary Clinton came out and said Russia was was looking at the Democrat field and looking at turning someone into an asset and potentially um, using that person as a third party run with the Green Party in order to split the Democrat vote. She didn't mention anyone by name. And even if you look at the whole quote, she, she suggests some people, but doesn't really mention anyone by name. Tulsi Gabbard came out defending herself, although she wasn't named, and said, no, she wasn't a Russian asset. Hillary's a warmonger. And they've been trading tweets and videos back and forth on this tar on this topic. It's turned Tulsi Gabbard into a into a meme. Um of people on the left memeing her because she's defending herself over something that she was not accused of. She announced that she will not be running for her Hawaii congressional seat in 2020 and that uh, and that she was not any sort of Russian asset and that this was the type of thing that the Democrat establishment was trying to do in order to silence the voice of the people. And that would be more believable if Tulsi Gabbard could pull above 1%. Tulsi Gabbard has never pulled more than 1%. 
um, she squeaked into the last debate. Literally, the deadline was showing up and she was still trying to get the money fundraised in order to qualify for the debate <clears throat> and try to rank high enough in all the right polls to do so. And... I thought it was interesting that when she, that when Tulsi Gabbard read those comments, she immediately thought of herself. Which makes one wonder, why did she have to jump to her own defense? Why did she say it wasn't her? No one said she was going she was a Russian asset. No one suggested that she was the one who was being groomed by the Russians. But somehow, when she read those comments, she decided that that somehow described her or that somehow she should take issue or that somehow she had to attack back at Hillary for saying these things. And here's the interesting thing. When it comes to Russian interference in the election, and some people have brought this up, Hillary's never been wrong. She's claimed their interference. Interference was proven. She has talked about it. It is everything she has said on this matter has been borne out. And it was kind of funny because I, that had not really occurred to me till I saw a Twitter thread and someone like had the receipts and I read through and realized, yeah, and Mitt Romney mentioned it way back in 2014, I think. When he's even I think maybe he was running for president in 2012 um, and he had said, yes, this is a huge, massive problem and we have to address this directly. And everyone was just kind of like, what are you talking about? This, you're crazy. What are you going on about? And and, you know, the 2016 election bore him out to be true. The 2016 election bore her out to be true. And so I find that interplay very interesting, and I think it gives everyone a lot of pause about Tulsi Gabbard, another person who will also not be getting the nomination. So that was very much in the news um, this week. So um, we're going to turn our attention now to impeachment <laughs> and all the news that has been going on with impeachment um, and there has been plenty of news on that front. So let's dive into impeachment. So this week on the impeachment front, we had a lot of different things happen. So a few of those things include we had support from the Ukraine ambassador. His name was Bill Taylor and his... Um, his testimony was pretty damning. So this story from NBC News, um, he told members of Congress Tuesday, I'm reading now, that President Donald Trump directed officials to tie foreign aid to Ukraine to demands that the country open an investigation into the Biden family and the 2016 election, a potentially serious blow to Trump's repeated denials of a quid pro quo. According to a copy of his opening statement provided to NBC News, Taylor said the EU ambassador Gordon Sondland told him that while Trump was not requesting a quid pro quo, he insisted Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky publicly announce investigations into the Bidens and matters relating to the 2016 presidential election. Members of the House Intelligence, Oversight, and Foreign Affairs Committees questioned Taylor about conversations he had with other American diplomats about the Trump administration's policy towards Ukraine. 
Taylor told the committees that it was becoming clear to Taylor as early as July that nearly $400 million of military aid was being withheld on the condition that Zelensky commit to investigating the Burisma Energy Company as well as a conspiracy theory about alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. Taylor said that Sondland told him in September that, quote, everything, meaning military aid in a meeting with Trump in Washington, was dependent on Zelensky making a public statement committing to order the investigations. Sondland said, quote, that President Trump wanted President Zelensky in a public box by making a public statement about ordering such investigations. Taylor said his concerns grew throughout the summer. He said he raised concerns to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and considered resigning. He also raised objections to officials at the National Security Council and the White House. He also went on to testify that uh, the there's a lot of, there was a lot of back channeling of um, relations between the U.S. and Ukraine, and the Trump administration does not use normal diplomatic channels to communicate with the country. They instead tend to use other. Um, other channels, which I thought was rather interesting. That is something where combine combining that with the kind of the other stuff that we've learned about the Ukraine situation so far, it's a pretty damning sort of thing. Trump is denying it, Pompeo is denying it, but the people who actually were responsible for American policy in Ukraine are coming along and saying, mm, no, 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 that's, that's exactly what was going on. They, they wanted this thing that would personally benefit the president, and uh, they were withholding congressionally authorized aid to do it. Now, to Mick Mulvaney's statements on the matter where he said, oh, this is normal American foreign policy. He wasn't incorrect when he said that. So in normally when you do these sorts of deals with a country, okay, we'll give you this much money if you will go and do these things. That's fine. That's normal foreign policy. It's called negotiation. However, the things that the federal government usually asks for in return, diplomats, secretaries of state, the president, this sort of thing, do not personally benefit any of the individuals involved. And that's where this becomes a quid pro quo, is that President Trump was using aid as leverage to get something that would not benefit anyone other than himself. Ukraine does not benefit from a meaningless investigation into the Bidens. Um... The uh, the American people don't benefit from that. Ukraine doesn't benefit from that. The only person who benefits from a Ukrainian investigation into Burisma Energy and the Bidens is Donald Trump. And this gets even deeper because the company Counter-Strike that was running the DNC server farms over 2016, one of the individuals responsible for that was from Ukraine. Scuttlebutt on the street in the district is that Trump believes that he, if they can find a server, the server, with DNC evidence on it and Ukrainian interference in the election, Trump could be vindicated on all the people who say, no, it was Russia, and here's why it was Russia. 
and all this sort of thing. So Trump believes that he could squash all ideas of any sort of Russian interference if he can somehow find this magical and non-existent server in Ukraine. The reason why that doesn't work is because, like most modern server architectures, there is no one server where all DNC information is stored. They use a cloud distributed server network um, with a variety of locations. So there is no one server to find in the Ukraine. They're going after something that doesn't really exist to prove something that is not even the truth, although we already know the truth. That's just the Ukraine scandal. This doesn't even begin to, and I think Democrats are making a mistake here on impeachment, that doesn't even begin to get in to emoluments clause violations, of which there are many. It doesn't even begin to dive in to the other problems of what Trump has done in terms of immigration policy, how border people have been treated. As I discussed last week, he lost five court cases in one day on a variety of things, um, including funding for the wall and how he was pulling it out of defense. It doesn't, it also doesn't do anything for um, the other policies in terms of not, you know, staffing the cabinet properly um, and basically using the federal government as its own private slush fund to prop up his own properties. This week, Trump announced and then withdrew that they were going to hold the next G7 meeting at his Doral property in Miami. That's a, that's more, I mean, that's an emoluments clause violation all by itself. And Trump has called it's the, the fake, phony emoluments clause. It's not fake. It's not phony. It's right in the Constitution. Um, Article 2, Section 9. Um, it, it, it's, it's right there. The Founding Fathers did not want public officials profiting out of being in public office because then the only reason people would go into politics would be to make money off of it. And given the jobs that people get after government service has already created enough of that problem as sort of a quiet loophole, this is just out-and-out out blatant milking the federal government for dollars to fund Trump. And that is something that I, the Democrats could write articles of impeachment on those things alone. They could write articles of impeachment on making the Air Force stay at his Scottish resort and giving millions of dollars to the airport to keep it open near his near his Scottish resort. I mean, all of the all of these things. And if there's any kind of one mistake the Democrats are making right now is that the impeachment inquiry is too narrow. They're hyper-focusing on this Ukraine thing and not also looking at, why not go after every emoluments clause violation? Why not go after the obstruction of justice proven in the Mueller report? He served it up to them and saying, I can't go after him for this, but you can with the impeachment process. And then going to the American people and saying, these are the high crimes and misdemeanors that President Trump has committed and we are moving forward with an impeachment vote in the House, and here's why, and doing so in a way that, to borrow a phrase from Kamala Harris, prosecutes the case. That's why it's so vitally, you know, important that they kind of handle it in a different way than, than they are. Alongside all this Ukraine stuff, and there was a great article in The Atlantic about um, William Taylor delivering the smoking gun on quid pro quo, and it really is a smoking gun. Laura Cooper, a Pentagon official overseeing Ukraine, um, 
was testifying this week when, um, and she brought in a great deal of wonderful um, in information um, in terms of corroborating what Taylor talked about, talking about the quid pro quo. However, during her testimony, um, several GOP members decided to invade a secure hearing room called a skiff in the basement of the Capitol um, for several hours and tried to occupy it and stop the testimony so that she couldn't say um, things disparaging the president. Um, apparently, they were all met, led by um, Matt Gates from Florida and burst in after a morning press conference um, as a protest, protesting the impeachment process as being unfair. Apparently, around two dozen GOP members participated um, and said it was a major security breach. You're not allowed to bring um, cell phones into these secure rooms. And uh, supposedly, like, this room can't be used as a secure room anymore because of them bringing in their cell phones to the space and did not comply with requests to have them removed. Um, House rules dictate that only those sitting on committees relevant to the discussion can be in those hearings. Not any member is allowed to go in, and they were in violation of, of House rules. So... Um, it was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting moment of protest and invasion, as one person put it, if you can't defend what's going on, you certainly have to, um, you can attack the process. And that's basically what Republicans were doing as a giant stunt. A lot of people are angry and concerned with all the closed-door meetings that the Democrats have been having on all of this. And I, I tend to agree. I would like to watch this stuff. I would like to see what exactly has gone on and what these professional diplomats think about it. That would be interesting to me. I would like to know what is it that's so bad. However, I think part of the reason why a lot of this is being done in secret behind closed doors is I think more than some of this has to do with national security. And when it has to do with national security, that kind of gets into a, a, a gray area. And some of the stuff that they may be asking could have classified implications. And they may be able to ask more questions more easily in a secure scenario. But I still don't like it. I don't like when Republicans do it. I don't like it when Democrats do it. I understand the reasons behind it, but I still don't like it. I would rather have it be out in public. And I think you would be able to get more public support for what is going on if these things were out in public and we were able to know more specifically about it. And you'd also get the news cycle turn. The clips would be on the talk shows and on the news cycle and in cable news and people would be writing more about it. There would be more stuff to talk about. I could talk about it more intelligently if I had some information, but I don't. <laughs> so it's a difficult thing to to do when the Democrats are not necessarily holding these hearings in a space where we can actively talk about what is going on and what has gone on in regards to Ukraine. That being said, as much as I don't like how the process is going at this time, that being said, impeachment is polling really well. 50% um, of Americans nationally favor impeachment. Um, Trump's support 
in states he carried in 2016 is trying to slump. So when you look across the upper Midwest, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, states that he desperately needs for re-election, his support is beginning to dip below 50%, which could be problematic for him in re-election. I was listening to the Chuck Toddcast this week as I was uh, going into town to run some errands, and they mentioned the fact of how long before the Republicans are going to decide that Trump is a non-starter. If Trump's support is falling, if the impeachment thing keeps going, you know, could people galvanize around Mike Pence and say, look, we need to run Mike Pence. This is not going to work. Um, Bill Weld and Joe Walsh are already trying to primary Trump slightly from the left and the GOP is so focused on stopping that from happening they literally are not holding primaries in certain states so that the candidates can't get any delegates to unseat Trump at the convention you know and Chuck Todd and his friends came out and said look Mike Pence has a greater chance of being president this time in, you know, 2021 than anyone on the Democrat field right now, which is true. Are we getting to a point where the GOP is going to dump Trump for someone else? And could that someone else be Mike Pence? And, but at the same time, though, the, the Trump folks have tried to keep Mike Pence so impossibly controlled that the only time Pence seems to be able to think for himself or do anything for himself or garner any support for himself um, takes place somewhere else. He led the delegation with Pompeo to try to fix up the ceasefire between uh, Turkey and Syria um, over <clears throat> the Kurdish situation, which is ongoing and quite deadly. Um, what, you know, what could we do? You know, what what could happen with that? I don't think Mike Pence is going to get the nomination. I think something really fatal is going to have to happen to Trump for the GOP to decide to really dump him. I mean, the polling is really going to have to go against him. And right now, 90% of Republicans still are in favor of Trump. If anything, just because he's a Republican. Not necessarily because they like what he's doing. So, I think the chances of him getting the nomination are the same as they always were. Is the path to 270 in the Electoral College the same as it always was? And that's where I think maybe the thing's a little bit different. If Pennsylvania's had it, maybe. If Michigan has had it, maybe. Um, if people in Ohio who've not seen their jobs come back and have only seen more jobs leave have had it, then how does Trump get to 270? How might that happen? And then the picture becomes a lot more murky, and that gives the GOP a choice. Do we run someone else in the hopes of having a better, more fair race, or do we instead um, keep with Trump and hope everything works out in the general and let the Democrats implode on their own. That's where things get a little bit difficult. And that's where I'm not quite sure 
what you know kind of what the thinking is right now it will be the conventions next summer will be interesting it'll be interesting to see how much longer you know the democrats are going to go on with these debates these multiple candidates obviously iowa starts voting in february once we start getting votes and people start gathering delegates people are going to start falling off fast we've already lost a few um and the voting in in iowa new hampshire and super tuesday should fairly well knock out the rest so that's going to be a discussion between biden warren sanders and maybe Buttigieg on the outside depending on how well he does in iowa um and how well you finish in iowa new hampshire <clears throat> no one gets to be president without winning one or both of those places so you know, you have to finish kind of really well in those states or win them in order for your candidacy to stay alive. You know, those are going to knock things out pretty fast. But and I think it's going to be frustrating if you go into Iowa, New Hampshire, Super Tuesday, and you have all these candidates and the, the delegates get all spread out. And, you know, only those who are getting no votes are the ones dropping out. You could, you know, still have a three, four person race going into the convention on the Democrat side. On the GOP side, I think some people have to have some soul searching if, G if impeachment is heating up. Um, as you hit conventions next summer, is is there going to be any will in the party to dump Trump as opposed to staying with what could be a loser? And that's where I think things stand right now, is I think maybe the GOP is trying to decide, do we really want to stick with someone who's getting impeached because that's a, a Democrat political ad that writes itself going into the general election next year. And um, on the Democrat side, trying to figure out if you're going to do a moderate return to normalcy or if you're going to be very progressive and try to disrupt disruption with more disruption. Um, Chuck Todd thinks that disruption is not going to be such a winner this election and this election isn't going to be about policy it's going to be about the, the direction of the country and if people like what Trump is doing as opposed to do the Democrats really and truly have a better idea that's I think where the where the debate is right now this week but as I've always said these stories are, are moving quickly and it will be interesting to see where impeachment um, goes, how fast the House, um, how, how, how fast the House moves forward with a formal vote and what articles they write and how the trial in the Senate goes. And also to figure out what is the GOP going to do with Trump? Suppose he's impeached and acquitted. Do you want to be running someone who's impeached? The Democrats didn't have that problem in 2000 because Bill Clinton was in a second term. He was on his way out. And Al Gore still did very well anyway, but the Republicans cleaned up in the House and Senate. Does the GOP want to risk people being kind of like, look, this guy's clearly corrupt. This is not working. We need a new change. And hope that, and just merely hope the Democrats and blow you run Trump anyway. Or are they going to decide, let's dump Trump, let's put up Pence, find someone to fill the v VP slot, and be done with this whole terrible Trump affair? I 
that's where I think the debate on both sides is right now, and the path forward on either side is not clear. What we learned this week was Trump's been playing fast and loose with the rules in, in regards to Ukraine. That's one thing that we forth for fact know from respected career diplomats that Trump is trying to use the federal government for his own gain in Ukraine for his own political favors because he fears a Joe Biden candidacy. And as Joe puts it, he will beat him like a drum. That's, we know that for sure. We also know Trump is using the federal government to make money for himself and his businesses. Those two things we know. Once we have articles of impeachment, and we have a vote in the House on whether to impeach or not and proceed to trial in the Senate, then the picture will become clearer. His chances of getting convicted and removed from office are slim to none. I mean, it's just, the Republicans control the Senate is probably just not going to happen. 1998, same situation. Democrats controlled the Senate, and a conviction was just extremely unlikely to happen. That being said, if this stretches out into caucuses, primaries, into next year, and this doesn't get resolved until the spring, and that is quite likely then the GOP has some difficult decisions to make. And so in that way, the impeachment and the presidential election stories are starting to begin to merge. Because of course, we always have to have a national crisis while the presidential election's going on. We can't have them in the middle of a presidential term. No, no, no. We have to have financial crises <laughs> and constitutional crises in an election year, merging all the stories together. So... That's all I've got for you guys this week. I'm glad we were able to catch up on the debate and everything. Um, next week, I will... Um, not next week, because we don't have a podcast next week. In two weeks, I will be gathering stories. I will try... We'll try to maybe take a break from all this impeachment talk or talk about it only for a very brief time, because I'm sure things will happen between now and then. Talk about it for a very brief time. Talk about some other fun stuff, because then we did a whole hour on just the debate and impeachment, and it all gets very tedious for a while, and I get it. So we'll try to do that next week. In two weeks, I'm sorry. Taking next week off. I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. I Follow me on Twitter and all that good stuff. And I will see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.